your back. Good. Okay, F. Scott Fitzgerald was born Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. No, he didn't write our national anthem, but you may have heard of his third novel, The Great Gatsby. Some have even labeled it the Great American Novel. What do you say? We finished the Great American Short Story. So please tuck in and enjoy part two of Winter Dreams. It did not take him many hours to decide that he had wanted Judy Jones ever since he was a proud, desirous little boy. It began like that and continued with varying shades of intensity on such a note right up to the denouement. Dexter surrendered a part of himself to the most direct and unprincipled personality with which he had ever come in contact. Whatever Judy wanted, she went after with the full pressure of her charm. There was no divergence in method, no jockeying for position or premeditation of effects. There was a very little mental side to any of her affairs. She simply made men conscious to the highest degree of her physical loveliness. Dexter had no desire to change her. Her deficiencies were knit up with a passionate energy that transcended and justified them. When, as Judy's head lay against his shoulder that first night, she whispered, I don't know what's the matter with me. Last night, I thought I was in love with a man. And tonight, I think I'm in love with you. It seemed to him a beautiful and romantic thing to say. It was the exquisite excitability that for the moment he controlled and owned. But a week later, hmm, he was compelled to view this same quality in a different light. She took him and her roadster to a picnic supper. And after supper, she disappeared. Likewise, in her roadster, with another man. Dexter became enormously upset and was scarcely able to be decently civil to the other people present. When she assured him that she had not kissed the other man, he knew she was lying. Yet, he was glad that she'd taken the trouble to lie to him. He was, as he found before the summer ended, one of a varying dozen who circulated about her. Each of them had at one time been favored above all others. About half of them still basked in the solace of occasional sentimental revivals. Whenever one showed signs of dropping out through long neglect, she granted him a brief honeyed hour which encouraged him to tag along for a year or so longer. 
Judy made these forays upon the helpless and defeated without malice. Indeed, half unconscious that there was anything mischievous in what she did. When a new man came to town, everyone dropped out. Dates were automatically canceled. The helpless part of trying to do anything about it was that she did it all herself. She was not a girl who could be won in the kinetic sense. She was proof against cleverness. She was proof against charm. If any of the, these assailed her too strongly, she would immediately resolve the affair to a physical basis. And under the magic of her physical splendor, the strong as well as the brilliant played her game and not their own. Yes, her game. She was entertained only by the gratification of her desires and by the direct exercise of her own charm. Perhaps from so much youthful love, so many youthful lovers, she had come in self-defense to nourish herself wholly from within. Succeeding Dexter's first exhilaration came restlessness and dissatisfaction. The helpless ecstasy of losing himself in her was opiate rather than tonic. It was fortunate for his work during the winter that those moments of ecstasy came infrequently. Early in their acquaintance, it had seemed for a while that there was a deep and spontaneous mutual attraction. That first August, for example, three days of long evenings on her dusky veranda of strange, wan kisses through the late afternoon. In shadowy alcoves or behind the protecting trellises of the garden arbors, of mornings when she was fresh as a dream and almost shy at meeting him in the clarity of the rising day. There was all the ecstasy of an engagement about it, sharpened by his realization that there was no engagement. It was during those three days that for the first time he had asked her to marry him. She said, maybe someday. She said, kiss me. She said, I'd like to marry you. She said, I love you. She said, nothing. The three days were interrupted by the arrival of a New York man who visited at her house for half September. To Dexter's agony, rumor engaged them. The man was the son of the president of a great trust company. But at the end of the month, it was reported that Judy was yawning. At a dance one night, she sat all evening in a motorboat with a local bow while the New Yorker searched the club for her frantically. She told the local beau that she was bored with her visitor. And two days later, he left. She was seen with him at the station, and it was reported that he looked very mournful indeed. 
On this note, the summer ended. Dexter was 24, and he found himself increasingly in a position to do as he wished. He joined two clubs in the city and lived at one of them. Though he was by no means an integral part of the stag lines at these clubs, he managed to be on hand at dances where Judy Jones was likely to appear. He could have gone out socially as much as he liked. He was an eligible young man and popular with downtown fathers. His confessed devotion to Judy Jones had rather solidified his position, but he had no social aspirations and rather despised the dancing men who were always on tap for the Thursday or Saturday parties and who filled in at dinners with the young married set. Already he was playing with the idea of going east to New York. He wanted to take Judy Jones with him. No disillusion as to the world in which she had grown up could cure his illusion as to her desirability. Remember that, for only in the light of it can what he did for her be understood. Eighteen months after he first met Judy Jones, he became engaged to another girl. Hmm. Her name was Irene Shearer, and her father was one of the men who had always believed in Dexter. Irene was light-haired and sweet and honorable, and a little stout, and she had two suitors whom she pleasantly relinquished when Dexter formally asked her to marry him. Summer, fall, winter, spring, another summer, another fall. So much he had given of his active life to the incorrigible lips of Judy Jones. She had treated him with interest, with encouragement, with malice, with indifference, with contempt. She had inflicted on him the innumerable little slights and indignities possible in such a case, as if in revenge for having ever cared for him at all. She had beckoned him and yawned at him, and beckoned him again, and he had responded often with bitterness and narrowed eyes. She had brought him ecstatic happiness and intolerable agony of spirit. She had caused him untold inconvenience and not a little trouble. She had insulted him. She had ridden over him and she had played his interest in her against his interest in his work for fun. She had done everything to him except, except to criticize him. This she had not done. It seemed to him only because it might have sullied the utter indifference she manifested and sincerely felt toward him. When autumn had come and gone again, it occurred to him that he could not 
have Judy Jones. He had to beat this into his mind, but he convinced himself at last. He lay awake at night for a while and argued it over. He told himself the trouble and the pain she had caused him. He enumerated her glaring deficiencies as a wife. Then he said to himself that he loved her. And after a while, he fell asleep. For a week, lest he imagine her husky voice over the telephone or her eyes opposite him at lunch, he worked hard and late. And at night, he went to his office and plotted out his years. At the end of a week, he went to a dance and cut in on her once. For almost the first time they since they had met, he did not ask her to sit out with him or tell her that she was lovely. It hurt him that she did not miss these things. That was all. He was not jealous. When he saw that there was a new man tonight, he'd been hardened against jealousy long before. He stayed late at the dance. He sat for an hour with Irene Shearer and talked about books and about music. He knew very little about either, but he was beginning to be the master of his own time now, and he had a rather priggish notion that he, the young and already fabulously successful Dexter Green, should know more about such things. That was in October, when he was 25. In January, Dexter and Irene became engaged. It was to be announced in June, and they were to be married three months later. The Minnesota winter prolonged itself interminably, and it was almost May when the winds came soft and the snow ran down into Black Bear Lake at last. For the first time in over a year, Dexter was enjoying a certain tranquility of spirit. Judy Jones had been in Florida and afterwards in Hot Springs and somewhere she'd been engaged and somewhere she'd broken that off. At first, when Dexter had definitely given her up, it made him sad that people still linked them together and asked, asked for news of her. But when he began to be placed at dinner next to Irene Shearer, People didn't ask him about her anymore. They told him about her. He ceased to be an authority on her. May, at last. Dexter walked the streets at night when the darkness was damp as rain, wondering that so soon, with so little done, so much of ecstasy had gone from him. May, one year back, had been marked by Judy's poignant, unforgivable, yet forgiven turbulence. It had been one of those rare times when he fancied she had grown to care for him. That old penny's worth of happiness he had spent for this bushel of content. He knew that Irene would be no more then a curtain spread behind him, a hand 
moving among gleaming teacups, a voice calling to children. Fire and loveliness were gone. The magic of nights and the wonder of the varying hours and seasons, slender lips down-turning, dropping to his lips, and bearing him up into a heaven of eyes. The thing was deep in him. He was too strong and alive for it to die lightly. In the middle of May, when the weather balanced for a few days on the thin bridge that led to deep summer, he turned in one night at Irene's house. Their engagement was to be announced in a week now. No one would be surprised at that. And tonight, they would sit together on the lounge at the university club and look on for an hour at the dancers. It gave him a sense of solidity to go with her. She was so sturdily popular and so intensely great. He mounted the steps of the brownstone house and stepped inside. Irene, he called. Mrs. Shearer came out of the living room to meet him. Dexter, she said. Irene's gone upstairs with a splitting headache. Oh, she wanted to go with you, but I made her go to bed. Oh, nothing serious. I. Oh, no, no. She's going to play golf with you in the morning. You can spare her for just one night, can't you, Dexter? Her smile was kind. She and Dexter liked each other. In the living room, he talked for a moment before he said good night. Returning to the university club where he had rooms, he stood in the doorway for a moment and watched the dancers. He leaned against the doorpost, nodded at a man or two, yawned. Hello, darling. The familiar voice at his elbow startled him. Judy Jones had left a man and crossed the room to him. Judy Jones, a slender, enameled doll in cloth of gold. Gold in a band at her head. Gold in two slipper points at the dress's hem. The fragile glow of her face seemed to blossom as she smiled at him. A breeze of warmth and light blew through the room. His hands in the pockets of his dinner jacket tightened spasmodically. He was filled with a sudden excitement. Uh, when, when did you get back? He asked casually. Come here and I'll tell you about it. She turned and he followed her. He had been away. She had been away. And he could have wept at the wonder of her return. Wept. She had passed through enchanted streets doing things that were like provocative music. All mysterious happenings, all fresh and quickening hopes had gone away with her and come back with her now. She turned in the doorway. Have you a car here? If you haven't, I have. I, I have a coupe. In then, with a rustle of golden cloth, he slammed the door. Into so many cars she had stepped, like this, like that, 
her back against the leather, so her elbow resting on the door, waiting. She would have been soiled long since had there been anything to soil her, except herself. But this was her own self outpouring. With an effort, he forced himself to start the car and back into the street. This was nothing, he must remember. She had done this before, and he had put her behind him as he would have crossed a bad account off of his books. He drove slowly downtown and, affecting abstraction, traversed the deserted streets of the business section, peopled here and there where a movie was giving out, or where consumptive or pugilistic youth lounged in front of pool halls. The clink of glasses and the slap of hands on the bars issued from saloons. Cloisters of glazed glass and dirty yellow light. She was watching him closely. And the silence was embarrassing. Yet in this crisis, he could find no casual word with which to profane the hour. At a convenient turning, he began to zigzag back toward the university club. Have you missed me? She asked suddenly. Everybody missed you. He wondered if she knew of Irene Shearer. She had been back only a day. Her absence had been almost contemporaneous with his engagement. What a remark. <laughs> Judy laughed sadly, without sadness. She looked at him searchingly. He became absorbed in the dashboard. You're handsomer than you used to be, she said thoughtfully. Dexter, you have the most <laughs> rememberable eyes. He could have laughed at this, but he did not laugh. It was the sort of thing that was said to sophomores, yet it stabbed at him. I am awfully tired of everything, darling. She called everyone darling, endowing the endowment with careless individual camaraderie. I wish you'd marry me. The directness of this confused him. He should have told her now that he was going to marry another girl, but he could not tell her. He could as, he could as easily have sworn that he had never loved her. I think we'd get along, she continued on the same note, unless probably you've forgotten me and fallen in love with another girl. Her confidence was obviously enormous. She had said, in effect, that she found such a thing impossible to believe that if it were true, he had merely committed a childish indiscretion and probably to show off. She would forgive him because it was not a matter of any moment, but rather something to be brushed aside lightly. Of course, you could never love anybody but me, she continued. I like the way you love me. Oh, Dexter, have you forgotten last year? No, I haven't forgotten. 
Neither have I. Was she sincerely moved or was she carried along by the wave of her own acting? I wish we could be like that again, she said. And he forced himself to answer. Ah, uh, I don't think we can. Mm -mm. I suppose not. I hear you're giving Irene Shearer a violent rush. There was not the faintest emphasis on the name, yet Dexter was suddenly ashamed. Oh, take me home, cried Judy suddenly. I don't want to go back to that idiotic dance with those children. Then, as he turned up the street that led to the residence district, Judy began to cry quietly to herself. He had never seen her cry before. The dark street lightened. The dwellings of the rich loomed up around them. He stopped his coupe in front of the great white bulk of the Mortimer Jones's house. Somnolent, gorgeous, drenched with the splendor of the damp moonlight. Its solidity startled him. The strong walls, the steel of the girders, the breadth and beam and pomp of it were there only to bring out the contrast with the young beauty beside him. It was sturdy to accentuate her slightness, as if to show what a breeze could be if generated by a butterfly's wing. He sat perfectly quiet, his nerves in wild clamor, afraid that if he moved, he would find her irresistibly in his arms. Two tears had rolled down her wet face and trembled on her upper lip. I'm more beautiful than anybody else, she said brokenly. Why can't I be happy? Her moist eyes tore at his stability. Her mouth turned slowly downward with an exquisite sadness. I'd like to marry you if you'll have me, Dexter. I suppose you think I'm not worth having, but I'll be so beautiful for you, Dexter. A million phrases of Anger, pride, passion, hatred, tenderness fought on his lips. And then a perfect wave of emotion washed over him, carrying off with it a sediment of wisdom, of convention, of doubt, of honor. This was his girl who was speaking, his own his beautiful, his pride. Won't you come in? He heard her draw in her breath sharply, waiting. All right. His voice was trembling. I'll come in. It was strange that neither when it was over, nor a long time afterward, did he regret that night. Looking at it from the perspective of ten years, the fact that Judy's flair for him endured 
just one month seemed of little importance. Nor did it matter that by his yielding, he subjected himself to a deeper agony in the end and gave serious hurt to Irene Shearer and to Irene's parents who had befriended him. There was nothing sufficiently pictorial about Irene's grief to stamp itself on his mind. Dexter was, at bottom, hard-minded. The attitude of the city on his action was of no importance to him, not because he was going to leave the city, but because any outside attitude on the situation seemed superficial. He was completely indifferent to popular opinion. Nor, when he had seen that it was of no use, that he did not possess in himself the power to move fundamentally or to hold Judy Jones, did he bear any malice toward her. He loved her, and he would love her until the day he was too old for loving. But he could not have her. So, he tasted the deep pain that is reserved only for the strong, just as he had tasted for a little while the deep happiness. Even the ultimate falsity of the grounds upon which Judy terminated the engagement. That she did not want to take him away from Irene. Judy, who had wanted nothing else, did not revolt him. He was beyond any revulsion or any amusement. He went east in February with the intention of selling out his laundries and settling in New York. But the war came to America in March and changed his plans. He returned to the West, handed over the management of the business to his partner, and went to the first officer's training camp in late April. He was one of those young thousands who greeted the war with a certain amount of relief, welcoming the liberation from webs of tangled emotion. This story is not his biography, remember, although things creep into it which have nothing to do with those dreams he had when he was young. We are almost done with them and with him now. There is only one more incident to be related here, and it happens seven years farther on. It took place in New York, where he had done well, so well that there were no barriers too high for him. He was 32 years old, and except for one flying trip immediately after the war, he had not been west in seven years. A man named Devlin from Detroit came into his office to see him in a business way, and then and there, this incident occurred and closed out, so to speak, this particular side of his life. So, you're from the Middle West, said the man. Devlin was careless, with careless curiosity. That's funny. I thought men like you were probably born and raised on Wall Street. You know, wife of one of my best friends in Detroit came from your city. I was an usher at the wedding. Dexter waited with no apprehension of what was coming. Judy Sims said Devlin, with no particular interest. 
Judy Jones, she was once. Oh, yes, I, I knew her. A dull impatience spread over him. He had heard, of course, that she was married. Perhaps deliberately he had heard no more. Awfully nice girl, brooded Devlin meaninglessly. I'm sort of sorry for her. What? Why? Something in Dexter was alert, receptive at once. Oh, Lud Sims has gone to pieces in a way. I don't mean he ill uses her, but, but he drinks and runs around. Well, doesn't she run around? No, no, stays at home with her kids. Huh. She's a little too old for him, said Devlin. Too old, cried Dexter. Why, man, she's only 27. He was possessed with a wild notion of rushing out into the streets and taking a train to Detroit. He rose to his feet spasmodically. Oh, oh, well, I guess you're busy, Devin apologized quickly. I didn't realize. No, I'm not busy, said Dexter, steadying his voice. No, I'm not busy at all, not busy at all. Did you say she was, uh, 27? No, I, that's right, I said she was 27. Yes, you did, agreed Devlin dryly. Well, go on then, go on. What do you mean, about Judy Jones? Devlin looked at him helplessly. Well, that's, I told you, there's, that's all there is to it. He treats her like the devil. Oh, they're not going to get a divorce or anything. When, when he's particularly outrageous, she forgives him. In fact, I'm inclined to think she loves him. She was a pretty girl when she first came to Detroit. A pretty girl? The phrase struck Dexter as ludicrous. Well, isn't she a pretty girl anymore? Oh, oh, yeah. she's all right. Look here said Dexter, sitting down suddenly. I don't understand. You say she was a pretty girl, and now you say she's all right? I don't understand what you mean. Judy Jones wasn't a pretty girl at all. She was a great beauty. Why, I knew her. I knew her. She was... Devlin laughed pleasantly. <gasps> I'm not trying to start a row, he said. I think Judy's a nice girl, and I like her. I can't understand how a man like Lud Sims could fall madly in love with her, but, you know, he did. Then he added, And most of the women like her. Dexter looked closely at Devin, thinking wildly that there must be a reason for this, some insensitivity in the man or some private malice. You know, lots of women fade. Just like that. And Devin, Devlin snapped his fingers. You must have seen it happen. Perhaps I've forgotten how pretty she was at her wedding. I've seen her so much since then, you see. She has nice eyes. A sort of dullness settled down upon Dexter. For the first time in his life, he felt like getting very drunk. He knew that he was laughing loudly at something Devlin had said, but he didn't know what it was or why it was funny. When, in a few minutes, Devlin went, he lay down on his lounge 
and looked out the window at the New York skyline, into which the sun was sinking in dull, lovely shades of pink and gold. He had thought that, having nothing else to lose, he was invulnerable at last. But he knew that he had just lost something more as surely as if he had married Judy Jones and seen her fade away before his eyes. The dream was gone. Something had been taken from him, taken. In a sort of panic, he pushed the palms of his hands into his eyes and tried to bring up a picture of the waters lapping on Sherry Island and the moonlit veranda and gingham on the golf links and the dry sun and the gold color of her neck's soft down and her mouth damp to his kisses and her eyes plaintive with melancholy and her freshness like new fine linen in the morning. Why, these things were no longer in the world. They had existed, and they existed no longer. For the first time in years, the tears were streaming down his face. But they were for himself now. He did not care about mouth and eyes and moving hands. He wanted to care when he could not care. For he had gone away and he could never go back anymore. The gates were closed, the sun was gone down, and there was no beauty but the gray beauty of steel that withstands all time. Even the grief he could have borne was left behind in the country of illusion, of youth, of the richness of life, where his winter dreams had flourished. Long ago, he said, long ago, there was something in me. But now, that thing is gone. Now that thing is gone. <gasps> that thing is gone. I cannot cry. I cannot care. That thing will come back. No more. <laughs>